You seem to have a flashback of the 60s hippie counterculture, but no, it's the real thing, an aging legend right there. But shave off the beard and all that remains is a fading media image, and yet the younger generation seems to have inherited it all. With old film reels on the TV and a new era on the horizon, you see both the past and the future in double vision. All right, so welcome. I'm here with Jeff Schulenberger, who is a lecturer at NYU, writes for various outlets, and runs a blog called Outsider Theory, through which he's also about to launch his own podcast. And so today we're talking about Vineland by Thomas Pynchon and the film Flashback, both of which were released right alongside each other in February of 1990. And they look back to the sort of mid to late 80s as caught up in a trajectory leading back from the sort of wildness of the 1960s. And so I wanted to start by looking at this passage from near the end of Vineland, which gets into some of these ideas about sort of uh, nostalgia and the things that kind of get left out of some of these stories, which I think sort of sets up some interesting things about thinking of these two visions alongside each other, and also lays out some of the sort of cultural scene. So you have uh, Prairie as this sort of young, late teenage child of, you know, these sort of uh, people from the, the 60s, one sort of radical. And and so, she, so it says, among the first mall rats into Fox Hills, Aboriginal as well to the Sherman Oaks Galleria, Prairie and Shea had been known to hitchhike for days to get to malls that often turned out to be only folkloric, false cities of gold. But that was cool because they got to be together. This time, they had arranged to meet in Lower Hollywood at the New Noir Center, loosely based on crime movies from around World War II and after. Designs to suggest the famous ironwork of the Bradbury Building downtown, where a few of them had been shot. Yuppification run to some pitch so desperate that Prairie at least had to hope the whole process was reaching the end of its cycle. She happened to like those old, weird necktie movies in black and white. Her grandfolks had worked on some of them, and she personally resented this increasingly dumb attempt to cash in on the pseudo-romantic mystique of those particular olden days in this town, having heard enough stories from Hub and Sasha and Dottie and Wade to know better than most how corrupted everything had really been from top to bottom, as if the town had been a toxic dump for everything those handsome pictures had left out. And so you have this idea here about, you know, the, the sort of corruption permeating through everything, which in some ways comes through in both works, but uh, in different sort of ways, different sort of uh, senses of it. And preceding this, Pynchon had published Gravity's Rainbow, but there's a sort of long gap between then. That's sort of much more sort of elaborate historical book. And so Jeff is going to talk a bit about that. Sure. So first of all, thanks for having me on. Right. So Pynchon really, um, you know, he writes the and uh, Crying of Love 49 in the 60s, and then kind of makes it big with Gravity's Rainbow, which is this sort of monumental historical novel set in World War II with, um, you know, partly about the, the V2 rocket program and all sorts of other bizarre and um, fascinating stuff. And so he, you know, really makes it big with that. Um, it wins the National Book Award and a few other major prizes, and it really puts him on the map. And, you know, it's a, I mean, in relation to what we're going to be talking about today, it is a novel of the counterculture, and he's sort of, a, you know, he's, he's linked to some interesting figures, like, or somewhat forgotten, like Richard Farina is, is who that book, is who Gravity's Rainbow is dedicated to, who was kind of part of the same world as, like, jo he was married to Joan Baez's sister, and, like, just kind of part of that countercultural scene of that period. And so Pynchon was sort of linked to all of that from his time at, as a student at Cornell. And, um, you know, it's very much, Gravity's Rainbow is very much a novel about the military industrial complex, right? And it's, it's about the emergence of the military industrial complex out of the kind of shady relationship between American business and technology um, companies in particular and the Nazis. And then you know, what ends up becoming like Operation Paperclip and the ways that not their Nazi rocket scientists are brought over. So it's, you know, it's, it's a novel about um, that, that picks up many of the themes of the counterculture about the kind of total domination of society by this kind of shadowy nexus of the state and the corporate world. 
And this, um, you know, is, is probably the most kind of beautiful and comprehensive literary expression of the, the sort of countercultural critique of that political arrangement. So then interestingly, because Vineland is a sort of about, is a novel about people who go underground, in a sense, after, after Gravity's Rainbow, Pynchon himself sort of goes underground. And he's, you know, he, I mean, he's always been a somewhat elusive figure. And so there aren't that many pictures of him from after his college years, even. And, um, but he, he sort of really disappeared from the scene for 17 years, uh, as I think you said, between publication of, of Gravity's Rainbow and Violin. He did publish a collection of stories in, you know, of, of previously published stories in, um, in the 80s before this, but um, I think everyone was waiting for another big sort of monumental novel, but he just kind of wasn't, um, you know, he's really not to be found. And he's somebody who very much avoids the, and has always avoided the press. And, you know, at some point he said, people, you know, if if they call you reclusive, it just means like you don't want sort of reporters breathing down your neck all the time, which, you know, which is sort of interesting in relation to the the critique of sort of mediatic power in this novel and of television and because he really kind of avoids the media gaze throughout this period and um he's uh you know his, but his next novel is very much anticipated and much written about um i think the his later novel mason dixon from i think 97 is actually he seems to be have been working on it in this period as well because there's some rumors float around that that's that he's working on a novel about mason and dixon Um, so when this, and when this book comes out, I think it's like they, um, they withhold the galleys until like a week before it's published or something. So it's, um, it's very much a surprise. Nobody, nobody really expects it. Um, so yeah, so it's interesting that, you know, his life sort of parallels, um, the, the sort of underground life, even though he wasn't doing so for political reasons. Um, but nevertheless, you know, given his kind of ideological affiliation with a great deal of the counterculture, it's interesting that kind of in this period when a, a great number of sort of radicals went underground, he was also this sort of elusive underground figure who everyone was hunting for and trying to, you know, track down rumors of and so on. So yeah, that's kind of the the backstory of this. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting though. He's avoiding cameras, and you had this idea that you know there's there's something going on. And you had posted the other day about CNN actually tracks him down and right, records right. him and such. But the, in the sort of backdrop of the novel, when you have these little flashbacks here, you have Frenesi Gates, who's Prairie's mother. You know, she had been part of this sort of radical, this like militant film group, Twenty Four FPS. And Frenesi had this really sort of idea of like, you know, that there was something really radical and powerful about just filming things and pumping up the light as much as possible and so on. And, and, you know, there's a lot of resistance to that where it's like somehow that was misled and that actually the sort of TV or as the tube as it's often called in the novel is something that is, is fundamentally controlling or at least sort of subduing that it's part of, you know, this vast, if not explicit plot to sort of subdue the American populace that at least, you know, it had ended up having that effect much, you know, to the opposite of what 24 FPS seemed to have right. sort of aspired to. Yeah. Uh, and I, this, it, it sort of seems like there, um, it, it's weird. It reminds me of this, um, you know, there were kind of these early proto internet projects that actually our friend Emmett talks about in his podcast recently of this guy, yeah, I'm trying to remember his name, but he um, kind of very, he would like, as part of the dot-com boom, he did these projects where they just um, like put everyone in a, a place and just filmed them at all times. Yeah, and, that, well, that was 1999, the, right. the public. Yeah, but I was just thinking about how, um, you know, there's some kind of proto-internet idea with the 24 FPS stuff, because it's almost as if you can, if you're kind of in control of the means of representation and they're sort of decentralized then somehow that has some kind of radical potential. I don't know. I thought, I thought that was um, a little bit resonant with, you know, because this is, of course, Pynchon ends up writing about the internet, right? And there is sort of references to computers in here, but it's, uh, it, you know, it's, it's in a way somewhat related to these kind of Californian techno-utopian dreams of, of somehow by, you know, indi- uh, by kind of distributing the, the means of representation, you're somehow... Um, you know, taking power back from these kind of centralized media channels or something like that. Well, yeah, and thinking about these two distinct visions, one thing I want to get back to at some point is the, is that really like computerized vision that Pynchon has, you know, first in, you know, Crying of Lot 49, you have the sort of city as this like computer chip kind of idea and 
mm-hmm. you know, that becomes sort of actualized in a grand sense in, in Bleeding Edge where right. you have Manhattan as this sort of vast sort of computer that's sort of running in parallel to this sort of online conspiracy world and the sort of power structures going on in sort of physical space and real estate and so on. But then here, you know, you have this idea of, you know, the people's lives as these like ones and zeros in this vast binary code and right. the, this grand cosmic idea. And then, you know, going back also to the the film issue. So you, here we have, you know, Pynchon is drawing on, you know, various sort of ideas about filming and, you know, a lot of pop cultural ideas and so on. And here we have right alongside his book, this Hollywood film from this Italian director coming up in a very, a very similar plot, you know, so it's here again, it's this FBI, young FBI agent, child of hippies, grew up on a commune, you know, rebels by joining the FBI. And he's trying to transport this sort of legendary hippie guy who's been on the run for 20 years. And you know, they, they sort of end up bonding and coming to sort of understand, you know, the whole ideas and, and this legacy of them and such and how, how the future might play out. And, um, and so you have, you have this example, you know, the, the writer of Flashback, his previous film that he wrote was Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. Mm. Uh, and, 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 you know, that, that's like Star Trek is one of the things that Pynchon is referencing a lot in this, um, this novel. Uh, but, you know, it's really interesting to look alongside the, the novel at this film that is having the same sort of flashback, but, you know, it's in a fairly, you know, standard like buddy comedy kind of thing. Lots of sort of twists and turns as they like have like multiple switcheroos and right. so on. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's quite a fascinating film. I I liked it better than I expected to actually. Yeah, it, I, I saw when I when I first suggested, I saw it was like very critically panned overall. Yeah, but I was like, I was intrigued anyway, and I ended up yeah. actually kind of liking it. No, it's really a. I mean, it's really an amazing pairing with this. And I mean, I think what's you know another um another point that that I think comes through very strongly in the in the film that I'm maybe a bit less sure about with, um, you know, it's, it's not as explicit in, in Pynchon, but, um, you know, the way that it is, I mean, it's really, as, as I think you were just saying, uh, anticipating kind of, you know, it's, it's a, it's a film of sort of a transitional moment, right? So it's, it's both looking back to the sixties, but then it's kind of, you know, poised at the beginning of the nineties and, you know, the end of the Reagan era and all that. And I mean, I guess it's set, right. It's set at, Maybe is it set in 1988? Is that the film is in 1989, um, and the the book is you know right. 1984. Yeah, right, right, okay. But yeah, so um, it's but it's interesting that it's um it's very much looking. I mean, I suppose because of its um you know that there's the scene at the end where where Dennis Hopper sort of says this thing about how you know the 90s are going to make the 60s look like the 50s. Yeah, it has that little aspirational look at the end that. rebellion is a young man's game and so it's like it's kind of expected that these older types these older hippies will kind of sell out in some ways but it's okay because there's going to be this renewal right in the youth yeah and i mean i I thought an interesting um another interesting moment was when you know they're they're in this small town in oregon and they uh you know they show up in the hippie bus so that um so that Hopper and um, Kiefer Sutherland can escape, and uh, they start blasting a tape of of his of of the Hopper character's most famous speech. And um, I ca- I can't quite remember exactly the details of it, but you know it's like people just all these random people standing around in this um, like by this train station in this town in Central Oregon are like deeply moved by it and sort of right they're sort of um, politically galvanized by it even. Yeah, I think so there's a sense. That like that anti-war message and the sort of peace and all of that, you know, in some ways is is newly um, sort of appealing, mm-hmm. you know, at the end of the, the 80s here where like, you know, it's something that they kind of grew up with and, you know, th- maybe thought they grew out of. And then because it's, it's all these people that are older and you have like those, those two people from the bar who like yeah. were, were like Huey's biggest fans. And yeah. but now it turns out they have like kids now and they're so they're, they're all sort of grown up and. And right, and one of them's like a they're like one of them's like an oral surgeon or something because you see the it's like one of them you see them in their in one of their offices and it's he's like a 
dentist or oral surgeon or something like that. So yeah, there's like a, I mean, obviously there, there's sort of a theme of, of selling out in both of them. Where, but whereas in Vineland, it's really about this kind of, I mean, it's really centered on frenesy and her strange trajectory from a radical to a, basically a, a snitch and a, an informant, you know, and then ending up in the witness protection program and so on. You know, in, in this, it's more kind of the dream of the 60s kind of being dissipated by practical concerns and success. I was also interested in, so the very beginning of the opening credits of Flashback were fascinating. Oh um, yeah, I love yeah. that. that. That sort of montage sequence of all of these very 80s kind of clips of like people in gyms, like doing aerobics and um, just all sorts of odd kind of, you know, signifiers of like 80s culture. Yeah, I love that. It had all these, like, it had, like, bottled water and, like, condoms and uh, MTV and VH1 and sort of automotive uh, manufacturing and oil pollution in the water and everything. There was was a lot more going on in that opening than I would expect. Right. You know, so whereas um, with Vineland, you really, you remain in this kind of marginal countercultural space for for much of it, right? And then the, the sort of normies you encounter are largely the feds who are not really very normie (laughs) Um, i mean like hector is not not a particularly typical uh fed character and then brock is kind of this you know somewhat terrifying um kind of monstrous figure um the you know the sort of central fbi agent and and frenesy's love interest but so you you really are are kind of insulated from sort of mainstream normie culture Whereas, whereas in a sense, um, you know, what, what's interesting in, in um, flashback is what you, you get this, this twist in the middle, spoiler alert, that, you know, up to that point, you just see the Kiefer Sutherland character, John, as this sort of very, I mean, quintessential normie, you know, Republican FBI agent. He, he, sh- he does have these kind of health food tastes, which, again, seem very much like deploying the kind of yuppie signifiers of the time or something, where he's... He, he brings his own salad dressing and he, you know, he only drinks mineral water and so on. But, but then, it, of course, it turns out that his normie, his normiedom is itself a kind of rebellion, right, against his parents. And yeah. then, but, but although there is kind of a sequence there as well, because he says, you know, he, he says to um, Hopper that, or to maybe to his, um, to his old sort of aunt figure on the commune, uh, you know, when, when I started going to school, I just, you know, I wanted to drink Coca-Cola, not carrot juice. And, you know, I wanted to eat hamburgers and not whatever. I can't remember what the, the equivalent yeah. was. So there, there's something about how, um, you know, there's that. And then, and then there's the mineral water and, you know, fish cooked without oil. And, you know, so, so that it's almost like that's sort of the synthesis of the, <laughs> the, the two queens. There's um, a wild, uh, subtly like radical idea in that, that scene where he's talking about what, where he starts wanting to be this sort of normie guy where it's like, cause it's, it's like the state showed up at the hippie commune and insisted that he go to public school. And right. then, so somehow public school ultimately radicalized him into being this FBI agent. Right, right, right. Yeah, I, I thought this was sort of interesting in relation to a passage in Vineland where it talks about this concept of uh, it's it's about Brock's interest in Lombroso and the concept of Missonianism, where it says you know th- this idea that there's a, a sort of deeply ingrained hatred of anything new, and so radicals, militants, revo- and revolutionaries all sinned against this deep organic human principle which operated as a feedback device to keep societies coming along safely, coherently. Any attempt to change things would be answered by an immediate misoneistic backlash, not only from the state, but from the people themselves. Nixon's election in 68 seeming to Barack a certain, a perfect example of this. So, you know, this, this struck me as kind of parallel to what the, um, to what flashback is showing us, right? That, that there's kind of this, that in a way, um, you know, it, it seems like John is kind of this, you know, could be read as this kind of allegorical figure for the nation, right? That he's he's kind of, you know, whipsawing back and forth between the sort of radical countercultural early commitments to this kind of conservative, you know, counter-revolutionary commitments and then, and then kind of finding some sort of equilibrium in between. So I don't think that's quite, I mean, I think that's more of a, 
I, that's not really the Pinchonian version of the story, but I think at least this this concept of uh, Missonianism is kind of an interesting one for both of them. Right. Yeah. It's that the the idea that they sort of rage against order, but deep down they have this desire for order. Right. So there was this parallel scene that I was really intrigued by, where it's like early, very early on, one of the first things in the novel is, so you have Zoid, he has to like do this wild stunt every year in front of the media right. to keep his uh, sort of disability benefits where he's like declared legally insane. And he goes to this bar, he usually like saws up, but it turns out that it's it's used to be this logger bar, mm. kind of rough and tumble, and now it's all like fancied up. And you have oh, the, yeah. the same scene in the film, basically, yeah. where you have this Doc Holliday's bar, you know, this old sort of legendary uh, sharpshooter criminal right. guy, you know, whatever. And and so then you have the the two older guys who, you know, they're the fans of Huey, and they're at the bar, and they're like, why do we keep coming here? This place sucks, you know? Right. Right. It used to be so cool, though. It's like, yeah, uh, but now it's like they put all this postmodern crap on the wall. Right, and, that's right. And everything's gone. He goes up to the jukebox. He's like, they wiped the whole decade, the 60s. It's all gone. Yeah. And, and so then there's this erasure of all of that impulse. And so there's this idea, you know, that, that in the youth there's going to be a new version of rebellion mm-hmm. and and that the, what they're hoping for from the 60s ultimately that by that point isn't like real anymore it would just be a theme bar if it was still like that right right um and, and so and so you know at the end you know people are gathered around and they're really digging the the vibe of the speech but it, it is also this commodity you know to go back to the passage i was reading at the beginning you know you have the old establishment design like this like world war ii black and white film kind of deal and you know prairie you know even as a sort of teenager sees that it's fake and is kind of sick of it and there's a parallel thing going on here where it's like pension is looking back at the 60s and legacy of this counterculture but it's also already becoming this commodity kind of thing that you could see sure. in, in the film for example as that and then there's also like this other meta layer in the film where the culmination is huey walker this aging hippie is trying to sell his book about his early life um mm-hmm. which again at this other wild parallel is you know you have this this guy hector in the novel is trying to get for Nezi to do right. a film documentary about her countercultural youth. Yeah. Um, and, and it ends up being the book ends up being a bestseller at the end of the film. And he's he's this like capitalist in a limo now and so on. And right. uh, so I was really interested in, you know, you have that sense, but like how do the, you know, to what extent do these two works somehow manage to rise above that sort of threat that they're both kind of very self-conscious of? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, also just as, as a little side note toward like the, the wider sense of this interest at, in this moment of looking back to the sort of countercultural 60s. My uncle actually, you know, this like very professional lawyer type guy. He actually bought this old Volkswagen van and, you know, had my brothers painted up in, you know, rainbows and sunshine and flowers and butterflies and bees and all this stuff. Right. Uh, <laughs> and would drive around Long Island in this mm. uh, this this hippie van that, that said in big letters along the side, Cannabis. <laughs> Wow, uh, and so, and so the, the, you know, watching this film and stuff, you know, it r- really kind of resonated with me that, that you know there was that feeling that I was sort of aware of even as a small child at this time of like somehow this moment really loomed large at this time, and part of that is is also the generational thing. Like this is this is when the children of that generation are sort of coming up into the world right. and starting their own rebellions. But uh, but yeah, I was, I was interested in, in what do you make of uh, you know how like the film or novel or whatever like managed to play off this nostalgia without just cashing in on the nostalgia? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. Um, I was going to say, you know, it's it's interesting to me that these are um, chronologically, like our relation to these cultural products is, you know, basically we're, we're as far from them as they were from like the end of the 60s, right? So it's... It's interesting that that these these books are or these two um, you know the book and the movie are kind of these like vessels or kind of mediating cultural expressions like between us and that period. Um, so I think you know they're they're interesting as a. I mean I I would say 
partly because they're both kind of about um, the way that things move on, right? And they're anticipatory as well as as well as backward looking. And I mean, you know, I think in some ways, you know, maybe you, you partly answer your own question because you know they're sort of about the process. You know, they're sort of thematizing the process by which these things become kind of kitchified and commodified. And I mean, it's it's interesting in relation to the feedback loop thing. You know, that 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 passage I was just reading as well because it actually reminds me of you know various people including uh mark fisher and um david graber in different ways have sort of written about this right but but the way that you know in fact part of what both of these are about is how um how media sort of recorded that time and then how that you know how, how those media representations continue to kind of weigh on the present, right? And so, um, you know, you have like the, the scene I was just mentioning where the, you know, they have a megaphone and they're blasting uh, Huey's speech, you know, from 1970 or whenever it was, um, you know, to this uh, town, you know, this um, public space in this town in Oregon. Obviously there, you know, in both, in both there are these sort of mediatic scenes that are very, another parallel would be, you know, um, when John actually originally known as Free, the key for Sutherland character. Finally, you know, when we get the big reveal that he grew up on this commune and they they end up there, he's shown a video of his child, you know, from his childhood, right? Or a, a sort of real, um, you know, like a real to real movie from his childhood of him and his parents and other people living on the commune. And so, and that's kind of what turns him. That's, that's what kind of um, makes him kind of snaps, you know, fully snaps him out of his sort of normie cop frame of mind and, and gives him a greater appreciation for the childhood that he rejected. And then there's there's sort of a parallel scene in in this where they go to the the home of the what are they called the Pisks the um, the two sisters who are the the who are part of the guerrilla filmmaking group and so in Prairie is shown movies of her of her mother and her mother's associates so you know it's it's kind of about haunted media to use that term from I think Jeffrey Sconce and the way that you know these sort of ghosts of history and of course in Vineland we also have the Thanatoids who are kind of ghosts so the, you know the way the ghosts of history are sort of present in media and then the way that kind of bears upon the present is sort of an explicit theme in both of these. And so I think it's, you know, it's it's probably doing that by, you know, it's 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 probably getting beyond just being nostalgia by kind of representing the mechanism by which nostalgia works through these kind of mediatic vessels. At least that would be my my preliminary take on that. Yeah, no, definitely. The real thing at the end of the film is was interesting because it's like, you know, somehow he had got caught up in this idea that his parents didn't really love him and stuff. Right. But, you know, it goes back to the idea that he's sort of radicalized by this sort of public school. Um, yeah. Uh, and, 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 you know, then he goes and watches the, the film and, you know, it's, it's full of like, you know, love and tenderness and he's like this beaming, happy child. Right. And, you know, so he doesn't like give it all up and to live on a hippie commune, but he kind of finds this middle road where he's like, oh, right. You know, like the, you know, there's, there's happiness outside of, you know, going the complete flip side and working for the FBI to like bust all of these types of people. Yeah. Also, also you know, th- there's this other dynamic going on to like parse out where, you know, these are both fairly wacky, you know, this is like a sort of like wacky buddy film, you know, there, there lots of twists and turns, you know, scene where like he tells him to put, um, he, he tells Huey to put his hands above his head. We still like handcuffed and he like shoots the handcuffs open and, and stuff. And yeah. The, there's the there, there's there is the sort of silly scene on the train where he tricks him into think he he's he's tripping on acid right and he's like oh, okay so here's what you got to do you need a downer you need to he starts getting him really drunk and he's the train conductor comes by and he's like i need a doctor and he gets this quote-unquote nurse who's actually like she does this like magic touch thing and you know so this, this is how they do the switcheroo where it's like huey pays her to sleep with the fbi agent so that he could steal his clothes and stuff and but you know so, so there's that and then in the novel you know there's this long chunk in the middle where it's like you have dl who is one of frenesi's old friends right. you know as this sort of ninja woman who you know she's supposed to assassinate through this ninja touch the fbi agent who's the sort of like primary sort of villain of the the novel who's like who's like kind of comically you know taunting everyone throughout right. the whole book uh as compared to like wiley cody at some point he has this like insane level of luck where someone in the else in the fbi describes mm-hmm. he was pretty sure like he was impervious to bullets or something 
Um, and so, you know, you have him, and so she's supposed to kill him, but she can't actually see during the, the sort of sex act in which she's trying to do the, the death touch because they had put this dead prostitute's contact lenses or whatever in her eyes <laughs> because they wanted the act to be seen through this woman's eyes or, or something. And so she ends up doing the act on this decoy, this guy Takeshi Fumamoda, and then they be- end up becoming, uh, you know, this sort of uh, buddy pairing as well right. because she's sort of bound to him where they, they cure him but he, he she's she she still owes him her life or whatever and it's, it's this whole like really wacky series and you know you have in a lot of you know pinching you have the sort of zaniness yeah and and you know as you know not, not that this is like totally unknowable but i thought it was just interesting to take this opportunity to sort of parse out a bit how exactly you know this novel comes to be seen as this much more serious work you know mm-hmm. with this sort of wild stuff going on in a way that you know this film was sort of just seen as this really sort of dumb formulaic movie yeah. and obviously some of that is you know the film is much more formulaic and the novel is this wild sprawling thing much more expansive mm-hmm. looks into a lot of deeper stuff but i don't know if you have any thoughts on that yeah i mean it's <laughs> i i i find pinchonian humor is like very hit or miss with me just as a side <laughs> like i i sometimes find myself just finding it like very dated and tedious and then other times i'm just like you know sort of roll over laughing so you know just all the puns and just ridiculous and just like really nonsensical plot turns i mean including a lot of the the dl takeshi stuff that you were just describing just like so baroque that sometimes it feels just like so ridiculously over the top that i can't quite take it and other times i just love it so um that's just part of my relationship with with pension but yeah i mean i think you know it's obviously i guess one reason would be you know it's as with all of his work, it kind of, it has various registers. And, you know, one of the registers is actually quite sort of melancholic and somber. I mean, alongside all of that, um, that zaniness and bizarre kind of picaresque adventures and wordplay and so on, right? There is this very evocative kind of um, somber quality to some of the prose, which, uh, you know, I often found quite powerful. And again, I think that's somewhat typical of his work. You know, it can sort of be haunting and resonant sometimes and just kind of, you know, ridiculous and hyperbolic other times. Um, and that's that's sort of the, I guess, sort of catacresis of his style. But um, yeah, so I would say that's probably part of it. You know, it just, he he's a, when he wants to write some really beautiful haunting prose he really can you know beyond that i think just it you know it's experimental formally in 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 the way that you know his his work is you know usually i think crying of law 49 is like probably the most linear in a sense um but you know this one is really highly non-linear right it it sort of um it takes quite a long time for us to just get all of the coordinates of what's going on right so so all these things happen that are sort of bizarre and nonsensical you know including like at the very beginning um zoid uh jumping you know having to jump through the plate glass window and you know just things like that which are just like seem very random and bizarre and like eventually they're they're fully explained but you know and and it's it's sort of sorted into all of these you know the, the chapters do kind of alternate between different characters and in a way like several of the chapters are just kind of prolonged character studies of like a particular figure in the novel so you know it's it's not it's it's not a you know the flashback is ultimately a, a standard linear narrative that doesn't require a great deal of piecing together whereas this has that kind of strange kaleidoscopic kind of fragmentary quality that you know you you sort of eventually get something like a complete picture but it it takes a while for it to unfold yeah i mean i think in the in the film you know there there are some genuinely like funny and genuinely tender moments but there is a lot of humor that's either on the sort of like slapstick register or just this like absurd absurdity of like the switcheroo where you know huey switches with you know the fbi agent john buckner and then he gets kidnapped by the people because they're huge fans of huey walker and they're trying to trade Huey Walker disguises the FBI agent for Huey Walker, who's in the prison in captivity, is actually the FBI agent. You know, it's it's you know this funny sequence, but it's it is you know really kind of simplistic. Whereas something like the at the beginning, as you're saying, the he has to jump through the 
plate glass window with the chainsaw and such is uh, partly, you know, partly the joke is this wider idea of like the bureaucracy of the American government at this moment right. where, you know, this is something that he like, some somehow we, we've reached a point where like, this is what this person has to do to survive. And it's not even just that he's like scamming disability, but that he's actually kind of been forced into this role through the FBI explicitly. Right. Um, right. And, and there's this really comical sequence, you know, toward the end of Vineland where it's like, you know, one of the major backdrops of the novel is these wider ideas about the war on drugs and how that sort of shaped, you know, American life and the sort of California scene in particular. And and so you have Brock Vond as this sort of comical villain empowered by the massive funding apparatus of the war on drugs. And then all of a sudden it's just radioed in like, oh, by the way, you know, all that funding, it got cut because, you know, sort of the cultural shifts, you don't really need the war on drugs anymore. People are kind of doing it more on their own things are sort of moving away from that that whole stage and, and then like very quickly brock vaughn kind of just he kind of like just exits existence in this, this wild way you know he he you know he dies but the way it's presented by pension is like is this like passage into the underworld kind of comical scene and you know i mean that that i think is is really it's really silly you know you could imagine the sort of surface level of that happening in like you know a wily e. coyote cartoon or something right. but the way it plays in to the wider novel i think there's, there's a lot going on there where you know you have these people set up to this like superhuman immensity ruling over these sort of families yeah. But it's entirely propped up by like just this budget line that can just be like wiped away in a second. Right, right, right. And we already saw that with the whole, you know, the sort of elimination of the protection program that Frenessi was part of, right? That sort of, you know, they just delete a bunch of stuff in the computer and suddenly no more checks. Yeah, I, I love that scene where it's like, but how could it be? You know, the bank's closed and it's like the computer is open 24-7 and doesn't have to sleep. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you have this kind of substrate. And again, as you said, this kind of goes back all the way to Crying of Law 49, that he starts kind of imagining this, right? But you have you have this very colorful world of, you know, almost kind of cartoonish <laughs> kind of adventures and so on. But then, you know, it seems that underlying that is this kind of world of, of kind of depersonalized code. And, um, you know, and that the 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 sort of the you know power as it's imagined here is on some level faceless right because it turns out that brock as you were just saying is is just kind of puppet right and so and and sort of power is connected to just this this realm of of binary code right and that's you know that's kind of this cold kind of depersonalized substrate um that's that's kind of operating under the surface of everything here yeah i mean i, th I thought it was really interesting where you know at the end of the film you, you know you have this aspirational idea that you know as you said the 90s are going to make the 60s look like the 50s you're going to have this great countercultural resurgence but you know Pynchon's sort of vision of the future is, is much more interesting where you have this wider idea around you know television and its impact and then you have like this emerging computer world right where that's where things start to really go awry is now all of this everyone is in these like databases and with like a few buttons they can just sort of be switched from you know having all of these protections and such to not or you know anything can be changed life and death hangs in the balance and there is this real sense that you know we're entering into not just like a, a different like historical era because you know the 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 sort of culminating point is the re-election of Ronald Reagan. So on that level, it's like this continuation. But what's happening on this like vaster technological, cosmological level is something that's like going to like radically alter, you know, human relations and subjectivity and all of that. Right. Yeah. I mean, I was interested in, you know, the ending actually seems quite optimistic, right? I mean, obviously they they get rid of Brock. And I don't know, there's there's sort of a more cheerful um, conclusion, kind of despite despite everything. And then it's it's interesting you have that um, that sort of you know you you don't have a great deal of kind of international material here, but you have Alexei show up towards the end. The um, right, yeah. So he, he's he's from Russia, and 
he had fe- so prairie's boyfriend is in this like low li- lowly band yeah. and you know just as like this kind of like youthful joke they threw a tape out in a peanut butter jar into the sea and somehow it ended up in the soviet union right. and blew up and like you know there's, there's this big sensation there yeah and right and so this guy just turns up looking for the this band the the vomitones <laughs> <laughs> who we previously saw trying to perform at a mafia wedding earlier in the story. Uh, yeah, and that's also how we meet the the ninja woman, DL. Yeah, right, right. That she's, yeah, I mean, it's just, again, it's like, it's so bizarre, right? It, Prairie has this this sort of chipped business card, right? That That sets off some detector in her handbag or something. Yeah, that plays a, a TV theme song. I forget what it was, but Y five O. Yeah, yeah. So it's yeah. That well, again, there's just so much kind of bizarre, <laughs> so many bizarre, colorful episodes in this. But yeah, so the, the uh, what I was going to say was, you know, it's interesting. We have this, um, you know, because it's written in nineteen or it's published in nineteen ninety. So you know, as the Soviet Union is dissolving, which you know, which is interesting in relation to the kind of Cold War setting of the novel, you know, and the obviously the the way that you know Gravity's Rainbow is also very much about the the kind of Cold War or the the origins of the Cold War military industrial complex. So this is a novel that you know, at least not from when it's set yet, but from when it's published, does kind of bookend the the um, Cold War. And you do have the 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 you know, it, it seemed to me that the this. Russian character randomly turning up in the last few pages, who's kind of this, seems to be this harbinger of kind of liberalization and the, the fall, potentially the fall of the Soviet Union, you know, is is sort of brought in there at the last minute. Um, you know, really, you know, he's, <laughs> he doesn't play much of a role, but it's a very funny episode. And he, um, you know, at least kind of points us to where we are when the novel is is published, which is, you know, just as the Soviet Union is is finally falling apart, and thus the Cold War is, is ending. So, yeah. you know, yeah, I mean, I it's, it's an interesting scene, because it's like, you know, the, the core of it is like what excites the Alexei is the rock and roll that, that the whole spirit, right. but it, it also arrives in this like peanut butter jar and mm-hmm. you have this emerging sense of like the yeah, commodification, the, the rising consumer culture, yeah. which is also, you know, the, this is the culmination of the era in flashback where you have Maggie, the sort of aging hippie woman from the commune. Yeah. You know, she's like, you know, I, I had a great time. I've been running this place for a long time, but I think it's over, you know, and I'm starting to want a microwave oven. I'm starting to want a food processor. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the, the two guys from the bar as well, they have the, you know, saying you have Michael McKean as one of them and, and someone else. And, yeah. you know, they, they, their, their last act of rebellion is they they do this like little play fight to help them escape and then at the end they're like is it over and then the friend's like yeah it's over right. and there there's there's this you know deconstruction of the sort of romantic idea of the 60s going on yeah. even in the film where you know the right as Kiefer Sutherland as free Buckner is like really starting to like come to understand his parents and that sort of 60s radical new left impulse. Yeah. You know, Huey Walker, this Dennis Hopper character, you know, he has to like shake him and be like, you know, living as a fugitive for 20 years wasn't romantic. It sucks. You don't want to do this. You know, just go right, have right. your job, do live your life. And, and you know, there's the same thing in, in Vineland where it's like, you know, you have the, these radicals and it's like, well, you know, it was fun when they were in college and then they grew up and it's like, oh, you know, actually life is a long time. And so right. that's part of what the the FBI does to flip people is it's like, well, we'll put you back on that college campus another semester, you know, but you're going to be undercover, basically. And it's like, you know, they, they just want to have that continual youth, that sort of, you know, wider hippie family that sort of can prolongs this adolescence. And, you know, there, there's the generational thing in flashback. But, you know, I mean, John Buckner, free, whatever is, he's already pretty old, you know, he's been in the FBI for a while, you know, he's, this, you know, pretty established guy. But I think it's a little more uh, powerful and violent where you have Prairie as sort of, you know, just sort of coming of age. Yeah. And, you know, this endless potential. And, and, you know, she's able to make sense of that whole past and kind of look ahead and understand that, you know, the sense of family, this renewed sense of home. 
home and you know whatever comes next is you know not free of corruption but you know there's there's something there yeah absolutely yeah um yeah i mean i think um oh i I, it's interesting i was thinking about in terms of um it's interesting i think of Kiefer sutherland as like the quintessential gen x actor or one of them and you know it's um free is really a kind of gen x character in a sense um because he somehow has to define himself against the boomers right um but his but then his relationship to them turns out to be highly ambivalent so you know he's and you know his relationship to consumption is is different as well like even when he and you know this goes back to what you're saying about you know alexi and how you know in a sense his his discovery of of the sort of this sort of belated you know american rock and roll counterculture um, is you know is in the you know, is is packaged within this commodity container, right? Um, so it it's sort of a harbinger of the way that these sort of countercultural values, you know, go to the Soviet Union in the form of sort of commodified mass culture, right? But it's interesting that um, you know, that that Kiefer Sutherland has this kind of ambivalent, you know, child of of boomers who you know, is is initially harshly rebelling against them and then almost kind of swings in the opposite direction and then kind of carves out some kind of middle path. But I mean, his, you know, when he he tries to imitate Huey on some level because he buys a motorcycle at the end, but the motorcycle is like a, a Honda, you know, it's like a new Honda or something, right? It's, it's you know, whereas the uh, Huey tell, has told him about, you know, how he like bought a secondhand Indian, you know, and, dro- and rode across country on it. So, you know, his, just his relationship to commodity culture even when he's trying to rebel is is much more inextricable right he's he's uh, going to the new motorcycle lot and just buying the latest honda model um he's he you know even his rebellion is 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 far more reconciled to the the sort of hyper commodified culture of the present than you know than his parents yeah, so he is. It's it's just sort of Huey sells out, and you know, free kind of buys in, and well, and then you know, it's it's also interesting that in relation to the kind of nostalgia commodity, you know, that the end point of the movie is the selling of his of um, Huey's book, right, which is clearly being sold as a as a sort of a, a nostalgic commodity, right, and so it's it's again a kind of representation of how the media sustains this um this kind of image of the the counterculture but delivers it you know despite its anti-countercultural despite its anti-commodity pretensions in its original form like precisely in the form of of commodities and then you know it's it's i think again you know i i think about it in terms of this kind of feedback loop by which you know it's kind of the mark fisher argument right that that these these kind of media images of the kind of hauntological images of these kind of dreams from the past are precisely what's kind of functioning as a, a sort of, um, you know, negative feedback loop that, that kind of pulls us backwards rather than allowing us to go forwards in some way. So, I mean, it's interesting as well that Kiefer Sutherland Free or John, whatever he's going by at the end is, you know, he's actually, he's hopped on this motorcycle and he's going to see his parents, I believe, right? So he is actually returning to his roots in that sense. Yeah, but his parents have also moved on in some ways. They're no longer on the commune themselves, and, They're and running so on. And store, right? I think that's what Maggie. Yeah. Is. So it's so it's it's like a similar vibe, but it's like now it's like you know in this official store. They're not like kind of off the grid. I, I like the subtitle of Huey's book where it's like flashback or revolting life, and there's you know this this tension between you know you have to like market it up front as like revolting, uh, but part of why people buy it is like there's this real appeal to it, and the same thing going on in the movie is like you know you have to have this level where you say like oh this isn't romantic it sucks you know don't do this but you know then you also you do you watch it because you want to see you know this sort of like 60s countercultural image and the sort of legacy of that and Right, right. Um, and and you know that that's sort of what's going on with the sort of proposed film in uh, Vineland, where you know there's a, you know Pynchon's yeah. really sort of aware of this whole dynamic, where what the guy wants is to make this Fernese, you know, this former radical filmmaker from the 24 FPS, to go and make this film about her countercultural youth, but he wants it as this like kind of anti-drug propaganda piece. Right, right. And and yeah. you know. His whole character is is really wild. You know, we didn't really get too deep into into that, but like, you know, he's this like tube addict, and there's this right. whole like militant squad of like people who like 
take people like him into this like tube detox and stuff. Right. right. Uh, well, yeah. And it's, and right. And he's a DEA agent, but he's a, he's an addict himself, right. To this other drug, right. Which is, which is television. So, you know, there's something there about how the, the, you know, the American empire has sort of been, um, you know, engaged in this war on drugs, but at the same time, it's, its basis is this other kind of addictive substance, right? Which is, which is the tube and which, you know, is, you know, he's in the process of trying to use as a, a medium of anti-drug propaganda. So that there's something about how, you know, the tube is kind of the, you know, well, I mean, it's, it seems like it can, it can sort of, you know, film and video can sort of go both ways as we talked about here, but you know, it's, it's kind of the, it's, it's the anti-drug in some sense it's, or it's the, it's the drug that in some sense helps, helps sort of snuff out the, the sort of expanded consciousness of the countercultural moment. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's something interesting where you brought up earlier, you know, as it comes up in, in Emmett's podcast the, the other day that the Josh Harris, we live in yeah. public project from yeah. like the, you know, Y2K thing where it's like you have people in this underground bunker, you know, constantly film, they could watch each other and, you know, there's all this craziness. So, you know, that that guy, one of the things about him in this wider We Live in Public documentary is like he grew up on television and that was like sort of his founding for how he understand where like the internet was going to go. And wh- what he was particularly obsessed with is Gilligan's Island, which mm-hmm. I thought of to, uh, where you find out, you know, toward the end, like when Prairie was a baby, like one of her earliest like, you know, moments was like she getting getting really wrapped by Gilligan's Island on television and like... Mm-hmm. This is her, that was her first time she really paid attention to the tube and she would start to sing yeah. along and she got really into that world. I don't know. I, you know, I don't have much to say about Killing Gonzales Island in particular, but there's something kind of interesting about that world of like shipwreck and isolation as, you know, distinctly fascinating to the sort of generation and the sort of 90s moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it, you know, in a sense, this this book is sort of about, you know, the, these sort of shipwrecked characters, right? Um, I mean, particularly the whole Vineland scene is kind of this weird insular world. But yeah, I think um, definitely it's, I mean, it's also about, you know, something like, you know, autonomous zones or something like that. Like I was thinking back to the the, the strange summer episode of last year with the, the whole, um, what is it? The people's, the PR, PR3, the People's Republic of Rock and Roll. Yeah. Uh, that they, that they set up cubed the, right PR cubed yeah um that the, they set up at the um the college of the surf um which turns out to be a a, a sort of fake real estate scheme a sort of fake college that's part of some complicated real estate scheme or something um so the students revolt and set up a sort of independent republic so you know i think gilligan's island could be you know it it, it reminds me of, of these kind of micro nations and you know autonomous zones and things like that as some kind of ideal that you know you get out of obviously the commune in the movie um in this you have sort of the the original one which is the the um pr cube the People's Republic of Rock and Roll, which basically uh, Frenesy helps destroy by, you know, snitching to the feds because of her affair with Brock. Um, and then and then Vineland itself is kind of this last refuge kind of island of castaways from the 60s in some sense. So this kind of, you know, vision of like island life, uh, so, some kind of, you know, again, sort of autonomous zone is... Uh, is maybe what I would pick out of that reference, but right, yeah, yeah, the, the fake college thing, and and then the you know the autonomous zone is, is was interesting, and there was something toward the end. I was trying to pull it up just now, I couldn't find it, but they talk about like this insurrection as well, and the way they talk about it really reminded me of like you know like the way things are being talked about this month. Oh yeah, well yeah, that was kind of something I wanted to bring up because. I've been thinking for a couple of years now that, you know, QAnon is really a, it's like the most Pinchonian cultural phenomenon. You know, there's so much in it that just could, there are just so many bizarre details of it that that could totally be straight out of a Pynchon novel. So at some point I tweeted that, you know, QAnon is Pynchon's latest and greatest work. But, you know, it it is interesting to me that, um, you know, if you you read this novel, right, there's a lot of, as with all of his novels, right, the kind of idea of like the looming fascist threat or the the sort of fascist side of America as embodied in the military 
military industrial complex and so on is is constantly referenced right but in some sense what you saw with the um the capital incident uh riot whatever you want to call it was you know the the these q um followers really are this um you know they would be very much at home in the kind of vineland of this world in some respects right of just these kind of weird waifs and strays and you know that that they're um you know they're they're really you know uh, one of the few sort of genuinely countercultural formations of the of the moment i would say in a very strange and sometimes disturbing way but um you know it it struck me reading this that you know the, it's it's odd that um you know these figures who are were themselves accused of being fascists you know are in many ways kind of you know, much closer to the, at least in there. And I mean, I'm, I'm not thinking of all of them, but, you know, these kind of weird figures like the shaman, um, you know, are, are very much these kinds of, you know, just more um, kind of emanations of the the sort of 60s countercultural moment that, that continues to, you know, provide so much kind of aesthetic, you know, or, or have so much aesthetic presence. So I don't know, you know, that, that in some ways the, the Pinchonian kind of weird outlandish counterculture is that of the kind of QAnon right, I would say. And then, you know, essentially the kind of boomer, boomer liberalism is at this point, you know, what's aligned with the, rather than sort of Reagan Republicanism, it's, or Nixon Republicanism, it's really boomer liberalism that's aligned with the sort of military industrial complex and the state. So I don't know what you think about that, but that was kind of my, uh, yeah, my yeah. Uh, bit of inspiration there was something i mean really interesting about the whole capital thing where you know what you saw is not this stereotypical republican in a suit kind of thing you know it's these people you know similar to like in violence you have the whole thing with the tube right it's these people you know playing out these roles drawing out in some ways from these sort of 60s countercultural images you know for people posting images and recording for d live and so on and there was a, a very great bit of Pinchonian humor in a way in this uh, QAnon development this month where there is the theory uh, you know I mostly saw it as a joke but I don't know if there's like a serious underpinning to this uh, where Mike Lindell the MyPillow guy you know people started saying that he was actually QAnon uh, and there's a very mm-hmm. real element to that where like he was you know meeting with the president and stuff um, right. but but you know that 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 would be like something that would come right out of a, a pension novel where it's like this guy sells pillows and stuff but actually he's this conspiracy theorist plotting you know these vast you know strategic power moves yeah absolutely i mean and just all the i feel like all the characters i hear about are these kind of pinchonian figures like i mean the you know the one woman who was shot was like a poly you know living in a polycule you know the shaman guy was demanding organic food in prison and then you know this woman who i was reading recently in the times there's something about this woman who's like one of the main QAnon meme people on facebook and she's like you know she's like a boomer writer in man who lives in manhattan you know so a lot of these people are just really not <laughs> like some kind of standard you know i don't know tea party republican types or anything like that right a lot of them are just much more um strange and unconventional um than than people might expect so you know that i think the spirit of of pension does live on there for better or for worse <laughs> right but it's also i mean you know part of what's going on is just he has this really deep vision into what's going on in you know american culture particularly where the impulses that are driving all of these things are not as simplistic as you would like to think and not as simplistic as you know these sort of more popular media might tend to show to romanticize in certain ways that there's a lot of you know Know, weird twists and turns and sure. wild details that you wouldn't really expect that you know in some ways you have you know the zaniness we were talking about but there are elements where it's like you know if you try to purge the zaniness it's like it just d- wouldn't accurately capture how wild and absurd right. this whole sort of era was and you know the bureaucratic nonsense and you know the psychological forces at work you know and and things like the the thanatoids as like this weird little like half-dead cult thing you know is 
is like a real sort of thing. You know, people hold on to these sorts of beliefs and they drive, you know, real action that has these sort of vast ripple effects. And mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah. So, I mean, you know, this, this is really great to go back through, you know, th- these ideas with this novel and the film, you know, thank you very much for, you know, agreeing to this. Oh, you yeah. know, it's, it's, it's such a, a big ask in a way to be like, Hey, you know, read this like 400 page pension novel. And no, it was <laughs> my, uh, I mean, it's, it's actually, it's one of the, ones I had not read before so it it was good to have something push me into doing that so and I think it 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 also like the film it sort of pleasantly surprised me I hadn't read it because it was a little bit you know it, it didn't get the best um press and uh, I think was was like you know when I was trying to read his sort of major stuff it it didn't quite make it into the top few and of course several of them are so long that you know it, it <laughs> almost feels like a task to pick up another one so anyway I was glad to have the reason to read it and overall just um, thought it was great and you know it felt very strangely of the moment and as I said I, I found something fascinating in the kind of way that we're 20 years out from these two these two cultural products that are kind of reflecting in 1990 20 years back to the to the end of the 60s so i think it's kind of a good moment to um to check them out yeah but yeah so this is this is a great discussion uh definitely recommend people you know read the book watch the film the book you know is definitely i, I thought it was a blast yeah um it, go, it goes all over the place but it's all you know kind of fun you know even the structure even might lend itself well to like you know all sorts of paces of reading but mm-hmm. uh you know a lot, a lot of interesting stuff going on great passages, lots of jokes. And uh, yeah, anyway. I was wondering if you would allow me to uh, read a passage. Oh, sure, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to keep us going too long, but I thought it would just, I can find it. I thought it yeah. would just kind of substantiate some of what I was saying about the quality of the writing. Yeah, okay, it's just a couple sentences. And other grand folks could be heard arguing the perennial question of whether the United States still lingered in a pre-fascist twilight, or whether that darkness had fallen long stupefied years ago, and the light they thought they saw was coming from only from from millions of tubes, all, sh- all showing the same bright colored shadows. One by one, as other voices joined in, the names began. Some shouted, some accompanied by spit, some old reliable names good for hours of contention, stomach distress, and insomnia. Hitler, Roosevelt, Kennedy, Nixon, Hoover, Mafia, CIA, Reagan, Kissinger. That collection of names and their tragic interweaving that stood not constellated above in any night-wide remotenesses of light, but below, diminished to the last unfaceable American secret, to be pressed each time deep again and again beneath the meanest of random souls, one blackly fermenting leaf on the forest floor that nobody wanted to turn over because of, of all that lived virulent waiting just beneath. Mm-hmm.